listening to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Parents and caregivers, every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern, the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning offers free parent support meetings. These drop-in meetings help support families using a floor time approach with their children. We are here for you when you need the support, guidance, or just to share stories and experiences. These meetings are open to parents from anywhere around the world. Come whenever you can. Register at icdl.com parents. Welcome back to Affect Autism. I'm Daria Brown. And this week I have one of my favorite returning guests. Although Mike, I think I'm saying that every week now, but <laughs> you really are one of my favorites for sure. Licensed professional counselor, DIR expert training leader, Mike Fields, joins us this week to discuss aggression. This is a topic I get questions about all the time, not only in ICDL's parent support group that I facilitate, but in general, I know that all of the DIR home program coaches get questions about aggression a lot too. Welcome back, Mike. Thanks. So Mike is also a, a father of an autistic son, and we've had you as a guest on the support group. The parents love having you. So let's get into our topic for today, which is aggression. We'll cover praxis, regulation and co-regulation, neuroception, which is the body scanning the environment for safety. And that comes from uh, polyvagal theory of Dr. Stephen Porges, mm -hmm. limit setting and more across age groups of individuals, including autistic individuals, including ADHD people like Mike and possibly myself. I've been told so many times that I'm ADHD Mike, but no official diagnosis. We'll see. Anyway, um, you know, this is something that is really challenging. And, you know, parents have child and they're really aggressive. And it's one thing when they're a toddler and they hit you or punch you or kick you or throw something at you. I mean, if you saw the arm on my son when he was three, if he whipped a glass at you, like he could knock you out for sure. Uh, he never did that, thankfully. He whipped things, but never at people on purpose. But, you know, there are children who get quite aggressive. And once they get older, and my son is almost as tall as me, uh, your son's 24, it, aggression can be very very scary especially if it's directed at the parents i've heard of people getting their nose broken their teeth knocked out um and self-aggression we forgot to put that in the list of topics self-aggression where kids are banging their heads against the wall and i know that every dir therapist will right away say it's about their sense of safety obviously they're not feeling safe let's figure that out but it just sounds almost trite because the parents always want to do what's best for their kid and sure. maybe don't understand why the child isn't feeling safe. And so let's dive into what that means. And what do you do? Because I know you've had experience with groups of children that and young adults that you work with, and you've come across aggressive situations. So um, I'll leave it to you where to start. I think first with all this, we need to start from a place of empathy and wanting to understand, but also a place of accepting that we don't have control, that you know we can't make things better. We can't 
uh, protect kids, can't even protect ourselves from everything. So this really is something that's kind of, uh, you know, we do the best that we can and, you know, ha have compassion for yourself and for others. Um, so I think that's a, a, a good place to start with this, kind of frame how we're looking at this um, from a place of compassion. Right off the bat, I think of if anyone tries to bring a Band-Aid anywhere near my son, he will get aggressive because that is traumatic for him to see a Band-Aid. He had numerous IVs ripped out of him, even if he was unconscious and, and whatever, he, he also was conscious while they're taking IVs in and out of him and he was only two, but those memories stay with you. So it's, um, I think you bring up the most important point and, and again, we'll get into the meat of things, but I know this sounds trite to certain parents listening. Like, of course I have compassion for my child who's aggressive. And yes, I'm, I have compassion for myself and yes, it's hard what I'm going through. Okay. Empathy. What's next? So what is aggression? I mean, how, how are we defining that uh, when we're talking about it? Um, I mean, the textbook dictionary aggression, uh, a domineering, forceful or assaultive verbal or physical action toward another person as an expression of anger, hostility or rage. Um, I kind of wonder if they're not leaving something out there, anger, hostility, rage or fear. Mm -hmm. um, fight or flight. I think that may be a possibility too, uh, to consider as we're talking about aggression. I guess I was thinking of violent physical aggression, but that's not the only type of aggression. Um, what about verbal aggression? If kids are yelling at you and, and also going back to the DIR model, um, I mentioned Mike is a DIR expert training leader, developmental, individual differences, relationship-based model, DIR floor time. When we think about the individual differences, we need to take into account everybody in the interaction. So if a parent is very sensitive to certain things and the child is aggressive verbally or otherwise, they can take it in very differently than someone else. So taking into account individual differences um, but in terms of that, the D, the developmental piece of the DIR model, and we'll get into the R relationships, which of course will be the most important thing in, in tackling these challenges with aggression. The D, we always uh, have been saying lately that the, the, the first fundal, fun, functional, emotional, developmental capacity in the model. Rolls right off the tongue. FEDC is regulation but really fedc zero is safety so i guess what regardless of the age if somebody doesn't feel safe they get into fight or flight and you brought that up that in the definition is fight or flight missing and so flight is i escape i retreat into myself whatever but we're talking about the fight response so i think that gets behind the definition of aggression. Like I am fighting against something that is threatening to me. And that may come out as verbally, it might come out as a scream. Um, it might come out as physical, um, 
you know, punching, kicking. Yeah, and that really is fundamental. Like you're talking about FEDC zero feeling safe. So uh, I mentioned compassion. You know, we're coming at this topic from uh, that perspective. Uh, safety is another thing that we need to really consider when it comes to aggression. And safety is kind of one of those absolutes, right? And lots, lots of stuff in floor time is, you know, following a lead and negotiating and, uh, you know, working through solving problems interactively. Um, safety with aggression, when there's risk to somebody or something getting hurt, um, you don't, you can't really floor time that in the moment. It's like uh, if you're on a roller coaster, you know, and, and you go up the hill, you can prepare for what's going to happen, right? You can try and try and uh, anticipate and plan. But then when you get to the top of the hill and you're going down, all you can do at that point is hang on, <laughs> right? So sometimes when there's aggression, really it's just hanging on, you know, making it through that, trying to uh, contain damage, trying to limit risk. Um, but like I said, part of that is anticipating, planning for, and kind, kind of trying to set up. Um, I remember my son loved roller coasters growing up, but they were all Disney roller coasters. Then we went to a bigger park and got on an old wooden coaster one time. And those things, uh, wooden coasters can be a really rough ride. And we go down the first big hill and my son was saying, ow, it hurts my back. Make it stop. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I, there's nothing I can do about that. That just felt horrible. It's like, yeah, we got another minute and a half. Oh, I'm sorry. My worst nightmare. Yeah. So uh, the, the floor time part of this is afterwards, we can talk about what that experience was like. And we can anticipate and plan or tailor the environment. You know, maybe we don't ride wooden roller coasters anymore. Um but when it comes to aggression, you know, if we know that there are patterns, things that set people off, you know, how can we tailor the environment? How can we, um, you know, try and anticipate and plan for what's going to happen and do that to the extent we can? But then in the moment, it's just trying to co-regulate, trying to get through that, help somebody feel safe, trying to limit um, any harm that could happen. You know, if there's a serious danger, that's kind of like a, a last resort, a hard boundary, a limit that you kind of have to set. Um, so aggression can get into some really tough and, and scary things. And if that is an issue that, uh, you know, where you do need to physically restrain somebody. Um, there are ways to do that uh, safely. Um, and there are classes on how to do that. I would encourage anybody who finds themselves in that situation on a more than 
singular basis, you know, to try and get some training into how to handle that. But then the floor time, like I said, comes before and after all around that situation. It's just what can you do? Um, if you got a kid who likes to throw stuff, well, let's have some soft things out, not hard things. So if you throw a beanbag at me, that's okay. If you throw a metal car at me and hits me in the face, that's a little different. So yeah, safety is an absolute limit and you can have limits in floor time. Floor time isn't just, you know, the kid does whatever they want to do. Um, Jeff uh, Gunzel is always saying, come back to the model. The CEO of the International Council on Development and Learning, ICDL, the home of DIR floor time training. Yes. Training. Yep. Yep. He's always telling us in training leader meetings, you know, when questions or when things come up, bring it back to the model. So if we're thinking FEDCs um, and when somebody's aggressive, really you're talking about like FEDC zero, like you were saying, feeling safe. Um, FEDC one co-regulation. How do we get through that? How can we help calm them down? And there have been individuals that I've worked with where um, deep pressure helps. That uh, you know, getting a big hug um, helps calm them down. There have been individuals I worked with where any any input is just going to add fuel to the fire. Um, I remember in particular, uh, a two and a half year old who would hit his head on the floor really hard. So he would get knots and even broke skin and, um, you know, got a little bloody one time. And if you said, tried to do anything, make sounds, anything, it just added and that escalated. So, um, this is where relationship is so important um me being not as close to the child as the parent not having as good a relationship it was like when that happened i would move back sit be quiet and just coach the parent to what's the least you can do to help keep the child safe so if they're banging their head they would you know just put their hand down where the child was sitting their head and as the child calmed down they would go to mom or dad uh, and then you know they would be able to accept a hug and you would want to cuddle and get big squeezes and then that would help co-regulate but they had to be the one to initiate that um, so safety was really it was really scary when that happened for both the child i'm sure and for the the parent um, and it was you know just investigation knowing the child's individual differences what kind of things soothe them what kind of things get them uh you know more aroused and trying to either add or eliminate stuff to help co-regulate get them back into a place of safety um so that's one i guess type of story and how to yeah. uh, set limits around that um, i think um yeah so just sort of stepping back a little bit and framing that last discussion. <clears throat> um, we're talking about safety and when you don't feel safe, you have a fight or flight response. If the fight response is what happens, it's aggression. And 
we're talking about safety in the general neurotypical understanding of the word safety where you know we have to keep everybody safe i want to talk a little bit about and touch on the child's sense of safety and how misunderstood it is as well because so many autistic adults have now told us what didn't feel safe to them. I was listening to a Learn, Pay, Play, Thrive podcast this morning on Pika and food. Um, Pika is when you eat like popsicle sticks or your, your, the sleeve on your shirt or rocks. Um, non-food items. Non-food items and, um, and eating challenges in general, kids who don't eat a lot. And you know, the, the woman who was describing her experience you know, was talking about how she just didn't feel safe and people misunderstood it as her being anorexic or whatever. And she's like, that's, that wasn't it at all. Um, and once she was in an environment where she could come home from school and relax and play video games or just do whatever without all these demands being put on her, she would feel safe. And then she might feel like eating something. And how when all these demands are put on her, and especially when a child has eating challenges, then more demands get placed because they're like, now we have to measure what you're eating. And now we have to um, make sure you're eating. And then we have to pair a non-preferred food with a prepared food. And she talked about how ridiculous that is because we want to always think about, and who is it that always says this? Um, somebody that I podcast with, maybe you, were we're not working with the child. We're working with the future adult. Is that what you have said? No, that's not mine, but I like it. Who said, who said that? We're always working with, in one of my podcasts, somebody that I interviewed said, we're, we're thinking about the future adult self of them. And so um, she said, would I ever buy food that I don't like in my house when I'm living on my own in the future? No. So how does pairing it with something that I like do anything to help me in my future? Um, and, you know, there might be more context around that that I'm missing, but I'll put a link to that podcast in um, the blog notes at affectautism.com for today's podcast uh, here on aggression. But really that sense of safety can be so misunderstood by parents. Like, what do you mean they don't feel safe? They have this perfectly wonderful house. They have all their toys and or video games and or iPad and or whatever that they like. Um, we do everything they want, blah, 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 blah. And it can be so misunderstood because it might be some kind of sensory thing that is making the child feel unsafe. Maybe they're hearing every sound. Maybe the tone or pitch of someone in the house's voice is so irritating to their auditory system that it it just grinds on them all day. Um, maybe the temperature is off. Maybe the clothes that they're wearing are irritating their skin. There's so many sensory things that can make a person feel aggravated and, and um, I guess aggravated and unsafe may or may not be a degree of the same thing, but like talk about some of the things that you've come across in your counseling where the parents just don't understand that the child isn't feeling safe and how you helped coach the parent to make them understand the child better and attune to the child. And I think you touched on that when you talked about the individual differences, what makes the child aroused 
negatively, positively, what makes them calm down and use that when you co-regulate them. If you could elaborate on that a bit more, that'd be great. Sure. So I, I think to start with kind of at a fundamental level, um, the polyvagal theory, Dr. Stephen Porges um, and Dr. Mona Delahook writes about this too. Um, neuroception is how our brain evaluates if something is a threat or not. So something happens and then intrinsically, just naturally, it's how we're wired. Um, our, all of our senses is how we connect with the world, right? The sight, taste, touch, uh, feel, oh, I said touch. Anyway, you know, all eight, including vestibular proprioception, interoception. Um, Smell. There, there you go. Gustatory olfactory. Um, so all those, their first job is protection, is defense, right? So when we sense something, our brains are supposed to, if it fits a pattern, if it matches, if it's familiar, we can habituate to it. The brain says, that's okay. I don't need to pay attention to that because there are millions of things that our brains are having to process all the time. Like right now, you're listening. You just picked up your glass. You're taking a drink. And all of that stuff is happening together. Probably not even thinking about that. But now that I mention it, you can probably feel you know, the, the water the cool on your hands. So we have to bring our mind to those things that our brain habituates to. Right? I'm going to think about this intentionally, focus on it. Um, but if it's something that's a threat, it naturally gets our attention. Our brain is supposed to quickly focus. And this is something that, that happens, you know, like on, on an instinctual level. This is not uh, we're making a cognitive choice. Um, if something crawls across your foot, your brain's going to say potential danger investigate right now. Um, so part of you know, understanding how do, how do we feel safe or what kind of things are threatening to us is what patterns does our body, does our brain, do our senses recognize? And with something, uh, when your experiences, when some of your senses, maybe your um, either under responsive, over responsive, um, you know, we can kind of either turn away from those things, or maybe we're not getting enough input to notice until it's too late. And so then that's a pattern that the brain remembers that, uh, oh, I missed something and something bad happened. Or, um, if our praxis is bad, having ideas uh, knowing that there may be multiple steps needed for to complete that idea. Uh, they may need to come in a certain sequence, but being able to think through all that and to predict what's coming, if we have issues with praxis, being able to predict is going to be tough too. And then put on top and, of that. And let's um, define praxis for people listening. I, I understand it as motor planning. 
Aha. So motor planning, yeah, um, is the foundation and that's kind of the, the, the start of everything, but I'm a counselor, mental health. So I'm working more, I'm focusing more on ideas and emotions, but praxis is everything from having an idea to how do we execute that idea? So if I have an idea that I want to take a drink, well, I have to think, well, first I have to reach out. I have to grab it. How much pressure do I use? It depends on how heavy it is. I'll get some feedback from the can as I'm picking it up. Um, and then I've got to be able to coordinate which muscles contract or extend to bring it to my mouth. Got to be able to control the muscles of my lips to purse around the drink to swallow all this kind of stuff that we take for granted. Um, so we learn praxis first, having an idea and how to carry it out. And if something goes wrong, how do we adapt? How do we change that idea? And you mentioned the sequencing part. So um, I was just talking to Dr. John Carpente yesterday, preparing for our ICDL conference presentation, where we will be, um, you know, he's coaching parents to do music therapy through floor time and I showed him a video of my son and that's the first thing that jumped out at him is does he have praxis challenges because he seems to be saying idea 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 and they're like compartmentalized they're not sequencing together and when I mentioned that he has had motor planning challenges from birth he said that makes sense how can we start to bridge the ideas together and, and help him sequence and you know the FEDC four, the functional emotional developmental capacity, uh, the fourth capacity where you have a beginning, a middle and an end of a story. And they've been working on that with him at school to create a story. And, and how does it relate without him just constantly bringing in other ideas just randomly? So is that the praxis that you're referring to? Yeah, that's part of it. Ideation. Um, but when we think of motor planning, that's something that's concrete, right? That's physical. We actually can see if our plan is working or not. If I want to take a drink and I don't use enough pressure on the can and it, I drop it and spill, I see that my plan didn't work. So that, that's kind of an important foundation for Praxis is the motor planning. That's concrete, physical. You get immediate physical feedback if your plan is working or not. So it's a good way to practice it. How do we do that with ideas? How do we do that with feelings? If I say or do something, how are you going to react? And so that's when we're dealing with ideas. It's a lot more complicated. It's abstract. We don't get immediate feedback. We may not see what happened. Maybe I say something expecting this is this is my brain, the pattern. If I do this, then you will do this. And if you don't do that, I don't know why. I can't see that part. So connecting those ideas in, in the abstract is a lot more complicated. And then if you think ideas, at least, you know, there's, we have logic, things make sense. Uh, you know, ABCs, it's always ABC. Right. An A is always an A. 
it always makes the same sound. Um, but feelings, emotions, that's even more difficult than dealing with symbolic ideas because feelings, um, well, first they, they actually have a sensory component, right? When I'm angry, there's a sensation in my body. Do I know those are connected? Am I able to do something to address that sensation? And that, that's where I'll refer people to my podcast with Dr. Glavinsky about interoception, that understanding of the feelings inside of you. And, and I think in general, people are just not brought up to really understand their feelings and process them. And, and that's why all the adults that we see on TV <laughs> have issues with feelings and processing emotions. And um, so, yeah, I think what you're talking about really gets back to what I asked you, which was if the parents are looking at a concrete way and ignoring those feelings, emotions, and, and you know, that, that you're talking about the ideas like, oh, I did this, but mom didn't do what I wanted her to do. And that brings up a feeling of aggression. It's sort of like an invisible sense of safety or boundary that was crossed. We can't see it. And so that makes it a lot more challenging to understand how to attune to your child and, and figure out what is it that happened because they're not going to say, well, I was thinking that, you know, I felt a little bit sad this morning and I'm not sure why, maybe because the weather changed and it brought back memories of when I was a child and you went to work for the first time because my your maternity leave was over and I felt sad because you were gone and I have this emotional memory of feeling sad today and I expect you to give me an extra hug, but you didn't. And so now I'm, my uh, hormones are taking over or whatever and making me feel this way and I'm expressing it to you and you're not re replying. So I'm, you're not responding. So I'm getting aggressive. No one's ever going to say that to us. <laughs> we have to figure these out as the parent. We have to be the detective. Yeah. And that's another tricky part about all this is we want to know what's happening. Um, so I used to be a software engineer in my first, uh, my previous life, my previous profession. Um, and a lot of times when you're calling, when you're trying to do something in software, there was code that I would write to specifically do something. But then if there was something that happened all the time, I might just be able to, to reference another piece of code. They called it uh, API application, something interface. I forget. It's been a while. Um, but I would tell this other piece. I'm like, here, you need this input and you'll give me this output. How does it work? I don't know. Somebody else wrote that and we don't have the code for it. All we know is we send it this and it gives back that. So our brains are, and we would jokingly refer to those as black boxes. Like what happens in there? I don't know. You give it to the black box and it gives it back out. You can't see it. It's dark in there. We don't know. And just got accustomed to, I don't know. And I'm okay with that. That's one of the big things with floor time that's really difficult too. We've been talking about this a lot in um, the classes that I'm teaching 202s, which is the 
uh, ICDL certification classes for DIR floor time. And the 202 is the higher FEDC classes, the second, the intermediate class. Um, and so we've been talking in there about, um, you know, how, how do we get through, how do we, how do we get comfortable with being uncomfortable? Really, that's what it's all about. Because when things are going like we plan, things are going as expected when we understand what's happening. Well, first, we're going to be calm and regulated, right? But then when stuff doesn't go, that may start to dysregulate us. And then, like we're talking about with individuals we're working with or in kids, um, then we start to have feelings. My heart races. Maybe I start to sweat a little bit. My chest gets tight. Well, wait, what does all that mean? Now I've got these sensations that are distracting me, pulling me out of the moment. And then I'm not able to pick up on cues as much. So I'm less able to accurately predict what's going to happen because when you're dysregulated, that's you know, the first regulation is the first functional, emotional, developmental capacity. Building bridges, logical thinking is way up at the sixth. Um, symbolic thinking, emotions and ideas. Uh, and language even is up at FADC5. But when you're shaking that bottom layer, everything gets weaker. So like you were talking about that FADC0, feeling safe, um, neuroception, we're getting, our body is telling us that there is a threat. We may or may not understand what that is. And so it creates a sensation in our body. And then what do we do about that? Well, if I start to get, you know, really upregulated, agitated, and I can feel like tension in my body, how do I release that? And some people may withdraw kind of the, the flight or freeze. Um, some people may fight. It's like, I got this energy in my body that there just has to be an outlet. How do I drain this? I, I like really, really like two of those things that, that you brought up. Number one, the analogy with the software engineering black box thing. <laughs> I hope people get that. I, I nerded out for a second there. Getting uncomfortable with what you don't understand and being comfortable with the uncomfortable. Sorry, being comfortable with the uncomfortable. Um, and the other thing that you said that I love, which I'm going to use now, is the higher capacities are here and you're talking about regulation here and when that's off it's shaking the foundation i've never seen it done like that before and for those of you that are listening on audio my hand is one hand is lower and my other hand i have up higher as if it's resting on a tower and the bottom is shaking and it makes the top of the tower shake so all of the higher functional emotional developmental capacities are really shaky when your regulation is shaky. So even if you have language, even if you are a logical thinker, symbolic thinker, all of that at the higher capacities, that's gone when the regulation is shaky. So I love the way you describe that. This is why I love doing the podcast because you hear things <laughs> in different ways with different people and you start to understand and solidify your understanding. That's one of my neuro differences. It's my, one of my neurodiversity t-shirts. Um, my brain needs symbols, visuals, little nuggets that I can hold on to. And just having that nugget is 
gives me access to a whole bunch more stuff. But I have to have that anchor point or else I can't get to any of the other stuff. You're listening to Affect Autism, where Mike Fields and I are unpacking aggression. Did you know that ICDL has a weekly parent support virtual group and virtual DIR parent coaching as well? Please visit icdl.com parents. Now let's get back to our podcast. You mentioned praxis, but to me, what you described was executive function. Mm-hmm. And that's how we manage praxis, right? But we, able to, we have to be able to bring our uh, facilities to bear on the problem. And so it's like, I'm aware that I need to do this. But then something happens and it's like, oh, I'll take care of that later. My brain, the praxis is, yeah, I know the steps. That'll happen. But something interrupts. I forget the steps. I leave it. So, yeah, it's, it's an execution of praxis. So executive functioning. For me, when, I, when I'm teaching classes, when I'm talking to parents, when I'm talking about floor time, I'm there, there's a couple of things that are really, really, really big to me. First, I think everything is praxis. Praxis is, is one of the keys to everything. Be able to understand what's happening around us, to be able to predict what's going to happen, and how can we uh, act, how can we relate, communicate, to get to the desired outcome. The now I'm hearing outcome. Colette Ryan listening to us and screaming, Meaning making, meaning making. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. And, um, and the podcast I did with Dr. Glavinsky about um, the um, Lisa Feldman Barrett's work, the interception and stuff and, and how our brains are predicting. Um, uh, it was about how emotions are made. Yeah. And you did one with, I think it was Dr. Glavinsky too, where he talked about the, Dr. Glavinsky. Um, I think it was the, the parent says, calm down. And he said, what does calm mean, Dr. Glavinsky, Dr. G? <laughs> what does calm mean? Yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting that you said everything is praxis because it just tied all that together for me. So Dr. Feldman's research shows like pretty much beyond a shadow of a doubt that we learn from what we're exposed to and predict. So when you learn this, I do this and this happens, you make meaning with that and then you can predict it and you're more comfortable with it. Um, and when it's chaotic, it might be a threat to you. When you can sequence those things and make it more manageable, you feel more at ease you're less likely, likely to be aggressive because I know for me, I'm definitely a fight person. If I get stressed out, I'm in fight mode and I'm frustrated. And, you know, so many times I can think of where, you know, I have so much to do, but I just can't manage to do it all in the time I need to do it. And I don't know which way to go, which thing to take care of first. And I guess that's a praxis thing too. So if we think about our kids being overwhelmed um, because whatever sensory input is irritating them or all these demands are being placed on them. And I want to go there next demands being placed on kids and something that I'm trying to do that I can't get to work. I 
think about my son who pressed the wrong button on his switch and he screams, Mom, help! And he gets so freaked out because he can't figure out how to get back to his game. He might smash something and break it. And I'm trying to walk him through and it's okay. We can figure it out together. If we smash it, you're not going to have any more game to play. Um, so all of these things lead to these aggressive responses. I think that's another thing that is sometimes difficult for some parents to understand is that we are placing lots of demands and expectations on our kids that we don't realize. So our kids maybe just, you know, need to do this, that, or the other thing, but we think they should do it this way or do something else. And especially with the parents who have younger kids who have just been diagnosed, that's the first things, the first questions I'm always getting in parent support groups. How do I make them do this? And they even say that, they even word it like that. How do I make them do this? How can I stop them from doing this? And floor time just gets into like, but why are they doing it? Why do you think they're doing it? What's underneath that? Yeah. It doesn't matter. They can't be throwing cars at grandma. True, but you don't just put a Band-Aid on something and plug the hole. If there's a leak in the house, you don't just stop and put your hand on it. You got to figure out where is that leak coming from and try and, and fix it. So, um, yeah, how, how do you help parents get to that point where they're not focused on that. They have to comply. They have to behave. They have to stop hitting their head on the ground. Because they do have to stop hitting their head on the ground. We agree. We all agree on that. Yeah, th that one definitely is. Is there is there a way to meet that need that is not dangerous? And I, I've uh, heard from and read. Um, things from uh, adults on the spectrum um, who have described um, self-injurious behavior as if there's so much going on, just so overwhelming that having a way to focus that, to bring it to one point um that is a type of relief i can think about that um like i had a cast on my leg one time toward my ankle playing basketball yeah i used to be thin enough to play basketball a uh, long time ago um and then you know i would have pain or especially itching this really distracting unbearable sensation and so I would take something sharp, poke it down in the cast and scratch. And that's what scratching is, right? You have this kind of, uh, or itching, you have this kind of vague, nebulous, you know, irritation. And so what do you do? You add more intense stimulation to override that. Ignoring the aftermath which is I'm gonna have bruises all over my head or a headache or the scratching. I'm gonna, you know, make my skin bleed and then it's gonna irritate even more and hurt more. But you don't think about that in the moment because you're just trying to relieve 
Yep, and that's the that's the FADC stack again too, right? You're not up at you know logical connecting ideas. What are going to be the consequences, the result of this when you're in a a really um, autonomic state, like a, a what's the word I'm looking for? Reflexive state, like a a primal sensory, you know. Um, so I, I, my point with that is just that, you know, when we're in this emotional point and you can look at, um, you can look at it from the FEDC standpoint, but I think the neurobiology also supports that um, there are things that happen before the signals get to our cortexes. So they're not, before they get to our cortex. So it's, it's not um, always a willful thing. Um, I guess, which kind of relates to what you said with the roller coaster. Once you're going down, there's nothing you can do. You can only floor time before, like take proactive steps to keep the child safe and not do things that'll aggravate them. And after sort of, um, what do you call that? When you debrief someone after a study, when you debrief somebody and go over, you know, let's, let's think about what happened. I know this was scary, blah, 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 and try and help the child make meaning about what happened in the aftermath and then you know, co-regulate through the bumpy, scary part by yes. soothing the child in, or adult in whichever way you can. Yeah, because when we're in that really emotion, emotional state, the whole, um, our whole tower of FEDCs is wobbly, is shaky. So depending on something that's up at the top, that's going to be the shake, shaking the most, it's going to be the least reliable at that point um, is tough. So that's another thing with, uh, you know, understanding um, what's going on. Well, they were able to do it before. Why can't they do it now? Individual differences. There could be all kinds of things. Maybe they're hungry. Maybe they're tired. Uh, maybe the, there's a sound or some particular input that is getting in the way. Um, but yeah, everything is so dynamic and so complex and we talk about individual FEDCs like we can really separate them. When when we're you know focusing on getting a good back and forth going, right? So we're focusing on reciprocity. This is FEDC3. Yeah, but we're not just doing that. We're also having to do it in a way where we're co-regulating, we're respecting the you know indiv their individual processing differences and our relationship to sustain engagement. And so it sounds nice to just say FEDC3, but it's it's like um, I, spaghetti is one of the few things I can cook. My wife likes to keep everything separate. You know, here's the pasta, here's the meats, or here's the sauce, and then here's the meat, put it together. I throw it all in a, I throw it all in a, in one pot because I don't want to get Toward, toward the end and I'm like well I just got pasta left but no sauce and no meat that's not I don't want that <laughs> so I mix it all together but then okay now I just want meat too late you can't do that that's that's trying to focus on an FE on one FEDC or one individual difference it's like I'm going to take just the oregano out of the spaghetti you can't focus just on the oregano it's cooked and infused and covered and coated and all that stuff. 
so yeah, it just gets messier. And that's, I guess, one of the tricky things about floor time too, is, you know, we started off talking about aggression and we're talking about all these other things, which are not specifically and directly aggression, but they are all related because we're talking about the foundation for relating, communicating, for understanding our bodies, how we feel, um, those sensory feelings, um, the sensory part of emotions versus the symbolic idea part of emotions. And that's one of the things with trauma work. I've been reading Dr. Bessel van der Kolk and uh, Robert Levine lately. And um, sometimes with trauma, if you try to go at the idea, let's talk about the event that can be triggering. But Dr. Bessel van der, van der Kolk's book, kind of the trauma, uh, the trauma Bible, I guess, um, you know, one of the big books on that is the body keeps the score. And so what a lot of the research they found there is that um, the body needs to process stuff. And if the body can get through it, then the idea, the cognitive stuff, that, that isn't, that isn't the, the big thing anymore. It's, you know, the body not being able to complete the process of fight or flight and, and getting stuck and that getting stuck um, kind of just compounds. It builds that pattern in the brain, in our bodies that when this happens, things get worse and it happened again and the same result, that's bad, that's worse, it's more. Um, so being able to get to the body and separate when you're feeling something, when you're scared, when you're angry, what does that feel like in your body, the interoception, and then before it gets out of control, can we, we can't control our emotions, but we can control our breathing, or we can do something with our bodies, get deep pressure, we can, uh, whatever it is that we, that the body needs to get through that stuff. Um, but again, that's not necessarily in the moment that's around when we have when, when we're in a calm and engaged state and can you know get to our highest FEDCs being able to stay in control we haven't lost it yet here's what we do and so really that's the kind of way around aggression is not in the moment in the moment it's just safety hold on um Maybe it's deep pressure. Maybe it's no input, no stimulus. Maybe it's separating, going to another room. Um, and if you, you know, if the, if the individual isn't able to remove themselves and you can't remove them, going on the other side of a door. You know, it's like, I'm not leaving you. I'm, I'm still here, but I'm behind a barrier because we have to be safe. Um, so I guess that's another thing too, is we want to use the relationship. We want somebody to know, even when things are bad, that they're not, a, not alone 
and maybe you need me to not do anything, but I can, I can do that. And I'm still around when you're ready. It's not going to, you know, you're not going to be alone through this. I think it's probably time that we wrap up. So I want to sort of summarize what we said. And I know parents always want the instruction book, the rule book of what to do. And we always say in floor time, that doesn't exist. Every child is different. Every parent is different. Parent with one child is different. Parent with another child is different than parent at school. We didn't even get into anything at school right now because I think parents are probably experiencing a lot of aggression from their kids now just because school started and because the kids are feeling unsafe at school. So, you know, if your child is experiencing aggression, physical, violent aggression all the time, got to figure out what's going on um, because, yes, it's scary. But number one, get some outside eyes in to help see maybe what are you not seeing? What What is it that is making the child feel unsafe? that they are in a fight response. So I think that's number one, let's identify it as a fight response because they're not feeling safe. They're not doing it to be bad. They're not doing it to aggravate you. <clears throat> I think maybe sometimes some kids can try and be clever and be annoying to their parents. I'm gonna do this to bug my parents, but I don't think that's the case in most of the situations that parents are bringing to us. It's It's a, case that the child is feeling unsafe and they're having a fight response. What is it that's going on? What can we do to prevent it from happening? Let's go beforehand. What happened right before they acted out? What was the trigger or, or whatever? What, what things can we put in place to help the child feel safe? And um, what can we do to co-regulate during? You just gave a bunch of examples, you know, staying calm, staying quiet, going behind a door if it's a safety issue, talking them through it. I'm still here with you. I know what you're going through is hard. Uh, they may not be processing language in the moment, especially if they're having a huge tantrum, especially those toddler tantrums. They're not listening to anything we say. And then after the fact, just trying to reestablish that relationship. Like that was tough what we went through. I'm still your parent, I'm here for you, I love you, I care for you, I wanna help you. Um, and I'm not not like you sit there and say all this to the child, you might, but just conveying that, that, you know, maybe you just give them the hug after, and, that was hard, you know? Um, so I think there's not really a prescription for what to do and hopefully uh, getting some outside coaching help can help work through it if there's some serious struggles. Well, first thing I would say is anytime a child either you know goes into fight or flight, or I mean even even uh, if you've got if you've got somebody engaged and you lose engagement, um, what that is saying is you mentioned demands earlier. Whatever it is that just happened was too much. That's beyond their ability at the moment to handle. And so they either withdraw, they resist, um, they get upset, whatever. But that's all telling you something was too much. So that's a place to start investigating what just happened. What was that right there when things shifted? Um, 
another thing you, you mentioned is uh, kind of, you know, people talk about kids being manipulative and manipulation is a really, really sophisticated social idea. And really when, what I think when somebody says, you know, this, this child is manipulative, they know how to push my buttons. I usually see that as a praxis problem. It's not that they know how to get you to act. It's they only have one idea for what to do when they feel this way. And so it, it may be that that just, you know, escalates things or sets somebody else off, sets off an authority, a teacher, a parent. Um, but that that puts an end to or it shifts whatever just happened. Uh, so again, for me, I, I would go back to, okay, in the moment, something just happened. What was it? And then before and after, work on that. Work on praxis. Praxis always, I think, helps because it makes things predictable. And if we're able to know what's coming or anticipate a little bit, uh, then that can help us stay a little more regulated. So I guess the big summary would be first neuroception, our body's ability to uh, determine if something's a threat or not. That can go wrong. Um, I don't believe oppositional defiance is a, is a thing. Um, Dr. Mona Delahook has a, you can Google her and uh, ODD um, neuroception, and you'll find some good discussion on that, but it's, it's not ODD, it's faulty neuroception. I, the body is incorrectly assuming this is a threat, which violates safety. So neuroception, our bodies are just saying something's a threat. We don't feel safe. In the moment, we're not going to be able to problem solve through that. We're not going to yeah, be able saying, to act. Saying of, you're okay, you're okay, you're safe, isn't going to make the child feel safe. Yep. Yeah, and Dr. Porges' research, I think, uh, was was one of the ones that shows that when we get into that kind of fight or flight state, one of the things our bodies do, one, one of the things our bodies do, I think that's right, uh, is uh, to filter out frequencies in the speech range. So when you're trying to talk to someone who's in crisis, not a lot of that, it, well, some of that is going to be lost. Um, another thing, talk to speech therapists, and when we get stressed, one of the first things that we drop is speech. So not only hearing it, but saying it. Use your words. I can't. That's why I'm doing this. Um, so in a moment, really, we've got to deal with the body and safety. Just hold on, get through protection, try to limit uh, harm to whoever uh, it might be in danger at the time. Uh, and then really the floor time stuff is before and after when we can process what was that like or what did you think was going to happen or uh, maybe if they're not able to talk about that stuff, we play it out. You know, and we have the little figures if they're doing, um, if they're doing emotional symbolic play and kind of act out a replay scenario, which is why I love therapeutic role-playing games. 
because I can take something that's similar to a real life experience, create that in a game where a child has some emotional distance and can talk through or work through, play through different ideas to address that. And For so the kids who are in the higher capacities. Yeah. Um, and then just, you know, try and be compassionate through all this understanding and, you know, realize that there's a black box. I don't know what's happening there, but something is happening. And if I was feeling like that, what would help me? Which may not be what would help your child, but at least it's a starting point. And then you can sort of trial and error from there. Yeah. And knowing individual differences, your own and theirs. And are you a good fit? Maybe you need to tag out with somebody. Um, so yeah, I guess that would be kind of my big summary. Great. Um, and we won't really have time to get into this, but you did make the point and I want to make the point and it was brought up in that Learn, Play, Thrive podcast that I referred to earlier. Uh, the annoyance with that autistic woman that was interviewed was when parents say the child is regressing and you brought it up. It's not necessarily that they're regressing, it's that in this moment, they can't do whatever it is that they can do in other moments um, because they're overwhelmed or whatever. It doesn't necessarily mean, oh, you know, they developed here and now they've regressed and they can't do this. And, and sometimes that regression, so to speak, can take months because they're going through a stressful period, like a transition um, to a new school or something like that. So I, I have a um, podcast with Maude LaRue. I'll refer to people uh, to called um, developmental growth spurts because she's talking about when kids regress right before they have a developmental leap. But, you know, this also applies where, you know, you might lose the ability to speak when you're overwhelmed with fight or flight response. And the other podcast I want to, or blog post, I think it was, refer people to where Dr. Tippy uh, and I spoke about limit setting because we didn't get to that a lot, but it's covered in a couple of blog posts that I did with Dr. Tippy's help and or podcast, I can't remember, but it's a developmental approach to setting limits. It really depends where the child is developmentally, how you set your limits. So I'll refer people to those in the blog post at affectautism.com, search for aggression, you can search for Mike Fields. Thank you, Mike. As you said, we could speak for hours and hours <laughs> and go on a million different tangents. But what I will do is I will try to get a part two aggression podcast with Dave Nelson from Threshold Community Services in Atlanta. He uh, did a great podcast with us about um, sexuality and different ways of dealing with what happens during puberty in the school setting. And he'll have lots of good examples about what to do when aggression happens in a school setting and or at home. So I'll, I'll try and schedule a part two with him as well. And um, thank you so much, Mike. Sure, thank you. Can't wait to run into you again next time. Maybe in Atlanta, maybe in New York, maybe in Toronto. We'll see. Yeah. And I will point out one last thing. Stay tuned uh, for the ICDL conference coming up in October, where Mike and I will both be presenting separately. Um, <laughs> and I, I can't wait 
to, I will be facilitating your presentation, Mike. Oh, cool. I volunteered to facilitate for you. Awesome. <laughs> so, thanks. Um, yeah. Check that out. All the links are at affectautism.com. Thanks everyone. And uh, back again in two weeks. Get 15% off any DIR 101 course and introduction to DIR and DIR floor time through ICDL.com by using the promo code AFFECTA15. That's A-F-F-E-C-T-A-1-5. Until next time, here's to choosing play and experiencing joy every day.